0: This is The East
1: TraumaCast,
2: with your moderators,
1: Kevin Pay from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah,
2: Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center.
3: This program brought to you by
2: the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships,
3: and
1: Building Careers.
2: Welcome back to the continuation of TraumaCast. What follows is recording number two of three of interviews conducted by Dave Morris and me at the 2017 AAST meeting. Up next, we'll start with Dr. Alex Eastman and his thoughts on the national Stop the Bleed campaign. I'm standing here with Dr. Alex Eastman from Parkland Hospital, who's one of the national leaders of the Stop the Bleed campaign. He and Dr. Jacobson, and Dr. Neal just finished a panel on how to build a comprehensive Stop the Bleed campaign at your program. This will include tips and the lessons learned. Alex, thanks so much for talking with me today.
4: Carrie, thanks so much for having me. We think this is a really important project for the nation in terms of improving our resiliency in communities across the country, and I'm really looking forward to talking about it.
2: So let's back up just a bit before we get into actually how to launch a program at your hospital. For anybody in the audience who doesn't know what the Stop the Bleed campaign is, if you could. Just give us an overview that'd be very helpful. Yeah, sure. So the idea behind
4: the Stop the Bleed campaign goes all the way back to lessons learned on the battlefields. In virtue of training not just medical providers but every soldier in hemorrhage control techniques, we've seen a real improvement in the battlefield survival rate over the last, you know, 15 or 20 years of conflict. And so when we got together for the Hartford consensus and we begin to look at how to improve survival from active shooter and intentional mass casualty events, you know, we first focused on law enforcement and what they need to do because they respond to these incidents, and then we focused on fire rescue and EMS personnel, but ultimately it became clear that the first people that are at the scene of an active shooter are those, what we used to call bystanders, now known as immediate responders who just happen to be right there when it happens. And so the idea behind Stop the Bleed is to teach everyone in America how to be an immediate responder, how to have the knowledge and the tools that you need to control life-threatening bleeding no matter where it occurs.
2: So this is similar to the national push to teach everyone how to do CPR, for example.
4: Exactly. So it, it's very much akin to CPR in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, what happened in the 70s is we realized people were dying from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So um, people that were much older than I am now uh, got together and they said, "Look, what can we do to try to improve survival?" And the idea behind CPR was born. The campaigns are actually very similar because it's the idea is that you know what I, what I use as my benchmark um, for a public health campaign like this is to say, look, my mom is a is a septuagenarian uh, labor attorney in Washington DC and she's great at a number of different things, but she's probably the last person in the United States that I want to come help me if I'm bleeding during an active shooter. But if I can craft a program that she uh, she can access, that she can understand, that will train her and more importantly, empower her to take action. If she sees someone bleeding right in front of her, we've really done quite a bit of good work to make the country more safe and resilient. And that's the idea. So that's the the core behind Stop the Bleed.
2: So the trauma centers are gonna take lead on this and we're gonna go out into the community and teach our community leaders as well as just civilians that live in the area. How do we start a program like that if we don't already have one established?
4: The first way, you know, People think that starting a program like this is very complicated, but the first thing you have to do is decide to do it, make that commitment to do it, and get out, (coughs) excuse me, sorry. First thing you have to do is just make the commitment to do it and teach a class. And you'll see it will spiral from there. I think when we as trauma centers to develop the structure and lay the structure down, but the real important point is that, listen, we want to teach 340, 340 million Americans how to do this, so we've got to get begin to do this, you're actually going to end up doing a lot more train the trainers than you are actual training. It'll be a combination because we need to expand the pool of instructors uh, and we need to get these classes into places that we don't normally touch.
2: In a beginning program, who's in charge of it? Does the trauma surgeon take on all the administrative roles, or, or do you delegate that within your trauma department?
4: No, I think this is a classic case of uh, what we do every day, which is working at a multidisciplinary team approach. You're going to have to recruit some manpower. And you're good to recruit your trauma nurses or whoever helps you, your injury prevention people, anyone in the in the hospital that touches the trauma program is game to help out with this. And so I think it's one of the the second things you do after you decide to the second thing you do after you decide to build this um, program is to build your coalition and I think what Mackie Neal and the guys at Pittsburgh have done has really been impressive in terms of being able to um, build a wide coalition but also in the community
2: and then once these programs get up and running what's the resource for the uh, directors if they have questions
4: so a couple of things happy to uh, if you go to www.bleedingcontrol.org, you're going to find everything you need. You're going to find slides, instructional materials, registration forms, the portal. You'll find ability to purchase kits and equipment if you need that. Um, and, and that's a great, just an outstanding resource. But if that doesn't get you what you need, i happy to help out. Um, welcome to email or call me anytime.
2: And then in addition, uh, there'll be a link to that website beneath this podcast on the east.org website. I'm also going to publish a link to Dr. Eastman's Parkland guide, his uh, kind of how-to tips and tricks, uh, information on how to get Me, I I really appreciate
4: it. No problem, Carrie. I really appreciate the time. And I'm also happy to let you put a link to my email. And if people have questions, like I said, um, please, please don't hesitate to reach out.
2: It's too important not to.
4: Absolutely.
1: All right, I'm standing here with Fred Paracci, who just presented his data, uh, actually multi-institutional data looking at rib fracture, repair, and timing. Fred, thanks for your uh, presentation. Yeah, my my pleasure. why don't you summarize your data real quick? You, you showed basically that earlier uh, rib fracture repair is associated with better outcomes.
0: Yeah, so we uh, did a 10-year study uh, at four level one trauma centers, high volume, and we set out to, number one, try to identify certain variables that were associated with the time from admission to rib repair, and then see if there was a relationship between the time of surgery and outcomes. And we found that... Um, Patients who were younger, who had a lower BMI, and who were injured uh, with a mechanism other than an MVC tended to have earlier surgery. And then once we controlled for those and some other covariates, we found that the longer you waited to do the surgery, the increased likelihood of uh, prolonged mechanical ventilation, pneumonia, and tracheostomy.
1: Great. We're also joined by Andy Dobin, who also contributed data to the study. So, Andy, thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you. Yeah, so uh, it's exciting that we've been able to amass this data, and I think that uh, the work that Fred's done in this the root fixation programs and who who would benefit from it at what timing. It's been a constant uh,
1: potentially a national database as well. Great, it seems like the major question that came up after you presented Fred was, uh, how do you select the right patients? That's the, that's the, the million dollar question. Do you think this study gets us any closer to that?
0: Well, I think um, this study in and of itself wasn't designed to look at who needs surgery and who doesn't. It was more designed to look at once you've decided to do surgery, when you should do it. But I do think that our work and others have continued to define the right patient. I think at the end of the day, it's a combination of um, Uh, the fracture pattern radiographically, but uh, importantly, probably more importantly, the physiologic status of the patient. So um, we need to merge those two things and uh, come up with uh, scoring and protocols to really refine it, because the studies to date that have looked at uh, operative versus non-operative management have just included a huge bag of patients ranging from just a few fractures to 20 fractures, and it's hard to piece out who really needs it. So that's that's our job over the next five to ten years.
1: Yeah. Andy, any comments about that?
0: No, I think uh, the other thing that uh, along with that is keeping prospective databases of patients that undergo and patients who are managed non-operatively at similar centers. Uh, that's going to be a big uh, push to um, either include it as part of NTDB or to create our own national registry for this patient population.
1: Is that happening? Uh,
0: it, is, uh, it, it is happening. Um so uh, the Wall Injury Society, which is a relatively new uh, organization, uh, was formed uh, just about a year ago and has about 80 members, uh, and one of the tasks of that society is to create a repository for, uh, for data on rib fixation patients. So if you haven't heard of it until now, check out the Wall Injury Society online and come to the meeting uh, next March in Park City.
1: Great. Thank you both.
2: I'm standing here with Dr. Erin Hall, who is currently attending at the Washington Hospital Center in D.C. She and I were co-fellows together at Shock Trauma, and she's presenting her data from when she was a fellow there. Her title of her podium presentation was Trauma Transitional Care Coordination, a Mature System at Work. Erin, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to me.
5: Absolutely. I'm happy to.
2: I'd like to start off with actually the question that you asked at the beginning of your presentation, why should we care about 30-day readmission rates?
5: I think there are two main reasons that it makes a difference and the most important to me is because worse outcomes for patients there's a two-fold increased risk of death um, the other side of this and perhaps why administrators are more interested in it is that they are incredibly expensive so uh, fully a quarter of the Medicare uh, expenditures for the year are on 30-day readmissions and that's led to a, a A readmission reduction program that nationally penalizes hospitals for increased readmissions. And I think you're very apt
2: in describing trauma as a chronic disease. It's very rarely just an isolated incident. Um, What did your team at Shock Trauma do to start addressing the chronicity of the disease and then uh, the development of your transition program?
5: Yeah, I think it's a, a big switch for trauma providers. I mean, we sort of love like being in the bay and being able to like fix things that are broken immediately. But what came to me is that this idea of we have a 97% survival rate and we're doing a great job at saving people's lives, but what are we sending them out to? Uh, and I think we can all sit around, and we have in our head that patient that we just know is not going to do well. That we've given blood and sweat and tears in the operating room and on the floor, and it's been saved a million—he's been saved a million times, but ultimately it's going to be his own downfall. He or she—I'm using he in the general sense. Sure, of course. Um, so we—that be- brought up the idea of chronicity and trauma as a chronic disease, and could we use? interventions that have been proven effective in chronic medical conditions for this condition of trauma. Uh, And I think we've shown that we can. So transitional care coordination is a very traditional, well-established intervention for medical conditions to reduce 30-day readmission rates. And we were able to show that we were able to reduce 30-day readmission rates in trauma patients as well.
2: Can you maybe give us some of the details? Like if I'm a patient and I'm about to be discharged with multi-system trauma to rehab and all the follow-up that ensues, like what exactly is your program? Like what is your transitional care program doing for the patient?
5: Yeah, so it seems like it's pretty basic stuff, but it becomes um, essentially five interventions. One of the most important ones is our trauma transitional care coordinators will meet the patient before discharge. So they have a name, they have a face, they have a phone number that they can call. They then get in contact with the patient within 72 hours of discharge. There's a full medication reconciliation. Uh, there's coordination of medical uh, appointments. So some of our patients have 9, 10, 15 different services to follow up with. Our trauma care coordinators will help make sure those appointments are on the same day, that they have transport for those appointments. They understand why all of these are important. And then there is just a lot of individual problem solving. I think the philosophy of our coordinators is such to meet the patient where they are, not where we think they should be. And it is key in providing good care for them. So
2: it it sounds like an amazing program because I find my frustration sometimes is once I've had a patient leave the building, the social worker that's on the floor can't really continue to manage the problem. So they may have a problem three days from now, but my social worker, her hands are really tied because she has to deal with the patient she's currently working with, and now the patient's not admitted, so she can't do things she used to be able to do. However, my coordinators in the office haven't really gotten involved in the patient's care yet. They don't understand what's happened for the past two or three weeks of hospitalization, and so they aren't necessarily the most effective person to help. So I think your presentation has demonstrated a need, a solution, it's cost savings, but how do you then pay for those transition care coordinators? Where does that money come from?
5: Yeah, so you have to have an investment in the hospital budget. Now we're able to justify it because we had a, we're on track for a $3 million dollar award due to the, uh, our decrease in readmission rates. So the program will pay for itself, but it absolutely requires a buy-in from the administration, from the hospital administration, uh, to put those resources to to do the program.
2: I think this is awesome work. Thank you so much for the summary and for taking some time to talk with me.
5: Absolutely, thank
2: you.
1: All right, standing here with Dr. Michael Rotundo, who's the president-elect of AAST. Dr. Rotundo, congratulations.
6: Uh, Soon to be past president, Cornbread really laid out uh, a comprehensive strategic plan with some tactical elements to it as to how we can really move forward with acute care surgery. The theme of the next year is going to be executing on the vision. It's going to be really all about uh, taking that uh, strategic and tactical plan and making sure we really move on the elements of it from the standpoint of research, acute, tying it in with acute care surgery in a meaningful way. Uh, adding the important quality elements that have to be there, uh, and of course, uh, continuing to engage and, and, and uh, enrich uh, the membership in a way that engage the membership and, and, and get them moving in a way that we can move acute care surgery
1: forward. Yeah, I felt like his, uh, his address really crystallized where we are now as a specialty and as an organization. I thought that was a great summary. I,
6: I think it really did as well, but it, it, it pointed out in, in, a, in a very subtle way all the work we still have left to do. We need more acute care surgery fellowships. Uh, we've got to bring our uh, patient outcomes and assessment uh, group, particularly in relation, in relation to emergency general surgery, to, to the next stage of development. Uh, there's a whole list of things that we have to do to really, to really get to that point of maturity around acute care surgery as a tripartite specialty.
1: Well, thank you very much for your time. We look forward to your presidency. Yeah, great. Thanks. Thanks.
2: I'm here with Dr. Elliot Hott, one of the senior surgeons at Johns Hopkins, who's also the secretary of EAST. I wanted to pull Dr. Hott aside uh, for a moment just to ask, uh, one, where does the AAST meeting fit within his obviously packed meeting schedule? It's not a meeting if Dr. Hott isn't here. Um, And then also uh, some of the kind of crossover and benefits of coming to AST meetings as well as the EAST meetings.
3: Uh, well, it's great. So I go to East every year. I go to WST almost every year I can make it, although I think I missed one of the Hawaii meetings because it's a really, really long trip from Baltimore. I try to go, go to both every year. And. Partly it's, there's just different things to see, some different people I like to catch up with, etc. But it's also a lot of great overlap between these two societies. Um, some of the leadership has gone on from one to the other. Mike Rotundo is the incoming president of AAST. He's past president of EAST as a perfect example that there's a lot of overlap. Uh, and I also noticed there's a lot of overlap in the science. So each organization kind of has its own personality and its own thing it's really well known for. Uh, As we all know, EAST is very well known for the guidelines. Uh, I had the privilege of chairing that committee a few years ago. uh, And it's still known as a guidelines organization. That's probably one of our premier outputs. It was great to see at the AAST meeting, even just today, three guidelines, three talks in a row cited EAST guidelines. One talked about the resuscitative thoracotomy guideline and really asked a question of did, did the guideline change practice over time, which I thought was a great question. It's great to see the AAST interested in studying things that's been put out by EAST. And then the other one uh, was guidelines uh, regarding venous thromboembolism embolism prophylaxis near and dear to my heart, it's the one of the things I like to study and work on in research, uh, and the guideline was cited twice in a row on two different topics, two different papers about VTE prevention. So it's just good to see that the, the societies work well together, we all play well in the sandbox, uh, we collaborate when we need to, and we don't step on each other's toes and try to poach into others' business where we know one society has, has really uh, a good foothold in an area, we're going to let that go and keep happening that way.
2: And from my perspective, I am one year out of training. One of the best things I've found about the EAST meeting as well as the AAAS team meeting is it gave me a job to meet people who are going to eventually be interviewing me and hopefully hiring me. Uh, Initially, trying to get a fellowship, and then once fellowship commenced, then trying to actually go out and get my first job. It's just, it's such a huge resource to be able to come in September and come in January and get some face time.
3: absolutely important thing. Um, many jobs are not posted. You can go to these Job Web, job Board website and look for jobs, but not every job that's available is there. Sometimes there are jobs that get passed along word of mouth and you hear about them at East or A-A-S-T. And that's where you got to come and schmooze and talk to people and shake hands and get to know kind of what the lay of the land is out there.
2: And then now that I'm out in practice, uh, for example, I'm the only one at my institution who does rib fracture plating. And so it's nice to come to these meetings, go to the rib fracture lectures, meet the guys that are doing it all the time. And then when I have questions or need help, I call them later because we met at the meeting, they give me their cell phone, I can call them and explain a clinical scenario that I find complicated and they help me. And it's all through coming
3: to these types of meetings. And, And I had lunch today with two people and we ended up talking about rib fixation. Which system do you use? Do you use different ones for different types of patients? what do you like to do for this? Hey, what's your technique for that? And as someone who doesn't do a lot of rib plating is is kind of just starting to get into the business. uh, It's a great thing for me to to kind of pick the brains of all these experts. That being said, it's another guideline that East has out there about rib fixation. So I think as much as we think about guidelines, they just keep popping up.
2: Great. Well, rather than you and I hiding here in a stairwell, why don't we go back and join the meeting? Okay, thanks. I'm here with Lena Napolitano from the University of Michigan. She was just a discussant on a paper presented by Richard Lewis. Dr. Lewis presented Reinventing the Wheel, the Impact of Prolonged Antibiotic Exposure on Multidrug-Resistant Ventilator-Associated Pneumonia in Trauma Patients. Dr. Napolitano, thank you so much for taking a moment to talk to me.
7: Yeah, it's wonderful to be here.
2: And Lena, could you just review what did uh, Dr. Lewis present and uh, what were his uh, results and summaries?
7: Yeah, they presented their uh, results from their large Presley Trauma Center um, with decades, really, worth of work in the area of trauma VAP. But this particular paper was about astinetobacter and Pseudomonas. Ten-year period of time, they had 679 VAP episodes, which is quite high. And uh, Dr. Lewis explained that that's uh, over 30% of their cohort of trauma patients. And as we all know that uh, these two organisms, Acinetobacter uh, and Pseudomonas, are very frequently multidrug-resistant. His main point of the paper was that the continuation of prophylactic antibiotics and multiple inadequate episodes of empiric antibiotic therapy were associated with greater risk for MDR pathogens. So I, I he very
2: articulately <laughs> express what I think I think about often in the ICU. So I have a patient who's been there for a couple of days, multi-system organ failure or organ dysfunction. Maybe he's gone to surgery. And then he gets a little bit of a fever, a bit of a white count. The nurses report that the vent secretions are increasing. So I'm clinically suspicious that maybe a pneumonia is starting, but I don't have great solid proof of it. I don't want to let an infection go untreated but I don't want to overuse my antibiotics. So for me at least, what I usually do is I start antibiotics, but then I'm left with this crux of, when do I stop them? Do I risk having an inadequately treated infection that I just never proved? Or inadequate or or inappropriate exposure to antibiotics? How do we manage these patients? Because we have them every single week in the ICU.
7: Yes, so we just published our current uh, guidelines by the IDSA and the American Thoracic Society and the Society of Critical Care Medicine was a part of these 2016 HAP VAP guidelines. And the current recommendation is that you do start broad-spectrum empiric antibiotic therapy. And that antibiotic therapy should be decided upon based on your ICU antibiogram, so the specific organisms that you have that cause VAP in your ICU, and also the patient's risk for MDR pathogens. And that's where I had a little bit of a quibble with Dr. Lewis's study, because in their algorithm for VAP treatment, they based all of their VAP antibiotic treatment plan based on whether the patient had an early VAP within seven days, in which they use amcelbactam, and patients who had late VAP greater than seven days, they use vancomycin. And that really is not consistent with our 2016 guidelines. the specific empiric antibiotic therapy that you should initiate. In this case, if you had a patient who had MDR risk, and the biggest risk factor is the receipt of antibiotics intravenously within 90 days of that episode, then you would start very broad coverage. You would start two drugs for Pseudomonas aeruginosa coverage, and you would start one drug for MRSA. And um, a, a concerning issue in the paper that I think he can really to really carefully look at how many of the patients in the early VAP cohort did have MDR pathogens, I think it's going to end up being about 57%, a pretty significant percentage.
2: Well, that's really interesting. That's kind of leads into uh, my second question about kind of the pressure we have that's creating these MDR uh, uh, pneumonias is any antibiotics in the past 90 days. And we give antibiotics every single time we go to the OR. So on hospital day five, If that patient starts looking like an pneumonia and they received a dose of ANCEF for their ortho procedure, that would count. Is that correct?
7: Yes. So in the guidelines, we don't make mention of that because there's no data to guide us. And so no one is quite clear of whether a single dose of empiric antibiotics, for instance, for prevention of surgical site infection, really does increase your MDR risk. Most of the papers are true courses of antibiotic therapy, intravenous antibiotic therapy for some infectious disease. I think um, the new guidelines promote that we start early empiric broad-spectrum antibiotic based on whether the patient does or does not have MDR risk, but then we really feel strongly that there need to be cultures obtained, and that's where uh, Dr. Lewis and his colleagues do a great job. They do, uh, you know, a bronchoscopy, either um, a bronchoscopic-guided or a non-bronchoscopic-guided BAL, and they truly um, then de-escalate their antibiotic therapy once they get their cultures back. So I think that back end, is very important. Otherwise, we're continuing to give three days of intravenous antibiotics, which will just predispose them to further MDR risk in their hospital stay.
2: Well, it's very interesting work. I look forward to more details coming out, and thank you for helping giving us all some guidance. And uh, we'll make sure to uh, look up the guidelines from last year. Uh, There'll be a link to those guidelines underneath this podcast. Dr. Napolitano, thank you for spending some time with me. Yeah, thank you. It's
7: great to be here at AAST. Thanks.
2: That wraps up the second of three recordings for the 2017 AAST Meeting TraumaCast. Join Dave and me for the final recording with more interviews with leaders in the fields of trauma, critical care, and emergency general surgery. Brought to you by the EAST Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the EAST website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the east.